I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Hey there, I am so excited to have Sunny Nakai here with me. Um, Sunny, uh, Dr. Nakai, is this amazing woman who I have met um, through a facilitation uh, as a facilitator for this incredible uh, program for health equity. And I'm so, so grateful that she has agreed to be on the podcast. Dr. Nakai works with national organizations to increase access and equity in higher education for students and trainees from historically excluded groups that are undocumented, minoritized, underrepresented, um, underrepresented and marginalized. She's known for her expertise in mission-driven, intersectional, and holistic review processes. Dr. Nakai is dedicated to improving inclusive institutional excellence through co liberatory equity practice. Her scholarship centers on equity, access, diversity, and outcomes through the spectrum of pre-medical preparation through faculty development and medical education. She's passionate about campus and community partnerships, cultural agility, structural justice, anti-racism, physician well-being, and health equity. Um, and many, many amazing academic accomplishments and currently is the Senior Associate Dean for Equity, Inclusion, Diversity, and Partnership an associate professor of medical education at the California, California University of Science and Medicine. Sunny, thanks for, uh, for being here and uh, taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for having me, I'm excited. So I've been, I've been secretly uh, admiring or not so secretly admiring Sunny's work um, and, and she's put together a lot of um, educational modules also for this program that we're facilitating that are just like lighting everyone up and getting people to really, really think. Um, so I'd love to get into that, but I think to start with, I'd love to hear how you came to this work um, and and why, what what made you so passionate about it and a little bit about your upbringing that, that brought you here. Yeah, thank you. So I am um, cisgender and biracial. I really identify as a, a woman of color. Um, my dad is Japanese, third generation Japanese American. My mom is like sixth or seventh generation, kind of Western European, um, Polish, I think some like Portuguese, I think one of my great grandparents. Um, so just sort of a, you know, immigrants, many generations ago, immigrant background where there's not as much of a sense of place, right, for my mom's side of the family. So my mom, you know, walks in this world as a white woman, my dad, you know, as a man of color, and, and I have, um, two sisters and two brothers. So growing up, I think we did not talk about racism. Um, turns out after my dad retired from his job, um, 25 years or 30 years in the Federal Aviation Administration as a tech, um, he wrote this you know, big diatribe about all the racism that he'd faced for all those years that he never really talked to us about. You know, he didn't even bring a picture of his family to work during the time that my parents got married in the 70s because, you know, interracial marriage was still really forbidden. So I'm kind of the product of people crossing those lines, but not really knowing how to navigate it. And then um, among my siblings, I think I'm really the only Democrat, the only person who's kind of, you know, really invested in social justice, really identifies as a woman of color, um, even though my brothers are, are very, you know, darker skinned, I don't think that they really see themselves that way or identify with those types of causes. And so it, you know, I'm the only one that's gone to college and uh, my, my little brother actually graduated um, with his bachelor's in technology when he was like in his mid thirties. But I really have a, this career, you know, in higher ed and have been able to engage in the transformation of education. And that's helped me, I think, see the world differently and caused me to think about my identity a lot more and understand how privilege works because I, I sort of a both and neither kind of existence or a both and kind of existence, right? So that, you know, not being able to take for granted that I fit anywhere growing up um, 
was was part of I think what shaped me to to want to do this work. Um, my family of origin is also Mormon, so my mom, you know, converted. My dad converted later on, and and so I also kind of grew up in this sort of bubble world of very strong in-group, out-group dynamics. So that was challenging growing up and seeing people who were different. And I, I just have always loved people. I've always kept friends from all sorts of different backgrounds, still do. <laughs> and I think the things that I was being taught didn't really square with the things that I was observing in the world and in the people that I judged based on their actions to be good people. So that also kind of has given me a perspective about in-group, out-group dynamics and, and what it takes to actually break through some of those pieces to create social change. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So, so are you still, I just want to kind of like clarify that a little bit. So in the, it, it feels like what you're saying and, and please stop me if, if you if you'd prefer not to comment, but in the Mormon church, you were kind of taught that certain people are wrong and certain people are right. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I really started doubting so much about that in my mid-teens, even though I was involved in leadership in the Mormon church. You know, all of the structures are very socially restrictive. You're not really supposed to date people who are outside of that. Um, my family moved to Salt Lake City from Oregon when I was 15. So I moved from being sort of weird as a Mormon in, you know, Portland, Oregon to everybody being Mormon. And all of a sudden I was brown and it was weird that my parents were, you know, an interracial couple. And I got asked, what are you all the time? And so I was almost forced to confront my identity, you know, as an adolescent. Um, I remember sitting in choir as a sophomore and this young woman next to me looked at me and said, oh my God, where do you tan? And I was like, <laughs> all over my body, like everywhere. What, I don't understand the question, right? So it, all of a sudden my skin was like novel, right? And I, and I had never thought about that. I mean, where we lived in Oregon, tons of my friends were, were biracial, you know, half Filipino and half Japanese and half Mexican, half like, we didn't even just, we didn't even think about it, it wasn't a thing. And then moving to Salt Lake City was like a 20 year time warp, you know? So um, I remember going to college and um, we had, we had, I just lived in this apartment complex close to campus and my roommate and I were hanging out. We just had met, made friends with a lot of people in our complex. And one day this, uh, one of our friends, Patrick came upstairs and walked in and was like, okay, does this purse go well with my shoes? And my roommate was like, oh yeah, that looks amazing. And then he just walked out and I'm just sitting there like with my eyes really big. And she looked at me and she goes, oh, you know, Patrick's gay. Right. And I was like, Oh yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally knew that, <laughs> right? But I, all of a sudden I'm like, here's this person that I love who's an amazing person. And I've been taught my whole life that these people are bad and that they're going, to, and that just all, like I kept having those experiences over and over again through education and through exposure, right? Where I had to continually come to these intersections to sort of square that. So I was really kind of doubting and not so much wanting to follow that. But then early on in college, my, my early twenties, I was like, I actually need to actively sever this and reconstruct my belief system from scratch. Cause none of this is going to work for me. Like there are certain aspects of the values that I want to keep, but the entire like structural piece of it, I, I, I could not abide in it anymore. Yeah. Um, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. It's, it's always, interesting to hear how religion plays a role in, in our uh, socialization and, and thoughts about the world. Um, so you do a lot of work with allyship and you do a lot of work, you know, in, in personally, but also, also I think in your job. And then you also, you do a, a lot of incredible work on helping, helping medical education um, to be more equitable and more inclusive. So um, let's, let's maybe start with the personal, uh, the allyship part. Um, what, it, what does it mean to you to be an ally and how do you, how do you deal with being wrong and how do you deal with mistakes that you've made and how do you model that in the work that you do? Yeah. So for me, what it means to be an ally is that 
I am willing to stand shoulder to shoulder um, with my fellow humans in a cause. I am not afraid of any of the stigma or fallout that can come with that. So I remember going to a safe space training in my early 20s. Um, and this was in Utah at the University of Utah. And one of the people on the panel said, for me, being an ally means I don't care if people actually, if people think that I'm gay as an ally, like that doesn't matter to me, right? And so that that kind of struck me early on as, oh, in, in this like social um, norm where that was so heavily stigmatized in Utah and within that like sort of culture, this person was like, I, I don't care if people think that about me while I'm doing this work. And so um, that that really stuck with me. For me, it also means that I try to align my my choices and bring that the perspective of folks who aren't in the room with me whenever I can and to not only fight for them to be in the room, but if they're not, to like to say something. And so maybe just because I'm, you know, talkative and extroverted in some ways, like I've always just spoke up about things and um, you know, been able, been able to be that person who's a voice. I will also say that my my family's existence and, and you know presence in this country is really a product of allyship. There are many stories in my my grandfather's um, you know history that he left us of times when people stood up for him. Right, he as a young Japanese man, an immigrant, he faced so much racism and discrimination, um, including you know being imprisoned during World War II as a U.S. citizen. Many other uh, my family, my grandmother, my great grandmother, all of my great aunts and uncles as well. So there are just a lot of stories of the recognition of their humanity and the fact that my family is still here. You know, is is a product of allyship to my grandfather's best friend, um, who took care of our our property for three and a half years while everyone was in prison. You know, we are one of the, you know, quarter of families who kept their land during the war. And that's absolutely not lost on me that this, you know, white best friend of my grandfather's gave up a very lucrative welding job at the shipyards to, um, he, he wasn't able to be drafted because he actually had an injury on the farm when he was younger. So he didn't qualify for the draft. So he, he showed up and farmed these acres by himself, you know, um, for, for my family. So I, you know, those kinds of acts are, I think, part of my historical DNA, right, of where people who have done the right thing have enabled me to be here. So I, I take it um, very, very seriously and very deeply because I, I, you know, I try to live that appreciation of people who have given um, gifts to me as allies. And that's a beautiful story. I, I didn't realize that about your, it makes sense about your, your family's history if they were in the U.S. and Japanese um, uh, for the last couple of generations. So thank you for, for sharing that. Do you, do you feel like there's um, intergenerational trauma passed down through that? Do you, how do you feel? Are you, are you aware of ways that that has affected you? Or maybe that's just sort of inspired you to be doing the work you're doing, which you just mentioned. I definitely think there's intergenerational trauma. Um, I, there probably needs to be more studies of how things like, you know, the boarding school movement for indigenous families and the internment for Japanese families have really impacted family dynamics. Um, I sometimes joke that I come from a long line of emotionally constipated people, but I think um, the root of that really is so much of the hurt and loss of control of being, you know, the laws of the land just did not apply, right? Like, like our country threw hundreds, thousands of citizens in jail for being Japanese. Like it just, it didn't make any sense. It wasn't supported by the constitution. Um, so there was a, a lot of trauma from, um, well, now I'm gonna have to go way back. So my great grandfather was actually murdered so he was a social activist and um, translated in the courts for immigrant families. He was part of a league of, of Japanese citizens in the area. And there was a gambling ring that was causing a lot of problems in the area that was illegal. And so he would go to these community meetings um, and uh, really try and, you know, do things to really improve the community where they lived in Placer County, uh, California. 
and some, you know, enemies who weren't interested in these reforms happening waited outside um, the, the driveway on the, I think it was like a specific night of the week that he would go to these meetings and they actually stretched a barbed wire across the driveway. So when he tried to pull in, he couldn't pull into the driveway. And so he had to get out of the car to sort of see what was going on and they, they shot him. Yeah. It was never investigated. They didn't go and take like try to you know collect any of the data from the scene it was just you know another immigrant person who was murdered and the state just looked the other way and thinking about what's happened just in the last 10 years with the murders of many immigrants as well as black men and women I just go well this isn't new right it's just a different it's just a different group and this this happened to my family as well and my grandfather writes in his memoirs about the keen understanding that if something were to happen to him while he was like a young teenager making a delivery or something like there's a possibility that he would never go home and no one would ever look for him or be prosecuted for that. He was aware of, of the precarity of his existence um, as a young immigrant, you know, man. So I think my grandfather then became the father of his family and four siblings with an immigrant mother who didn't speak English, trying to manage the farm. Um, he raised his siblings from the age of 13, actually did not, he went to college um, to UC Davis for a semester and he wrote, he wrote in his memoirs that he dropped out of a semester because he couldn't afford the $58 in tuition and had to keep running the fruit stand, but he made sure every single one of his siblings went to college, um, including, you know, buying a house for his sisters in Berkeley when no one would rent to them. Um, when they went there to go to college, no one would rent to these Japanese women. And so he figured out a way to, to buy them a house so that they would have a place um, near school. So it just, you know, he truly, truly was a person for others, but I don't think that the pain and the trauma of, of his life, um, it really came out through work. Like if I just work hard enough, it'll be okay. And I, I really see that in my dad as well. And in the kind of lack of acknowledgement of, of the pain. Um, and, you know, and there's, a, there's a lot written about folks from the internment um, who didn't talk about it, right? There was such a thing as like, she got to goodnight, like it can't be helped. And so we don't talk about things that we can't change. Um, and in Japanese culture, we don't, we don't talk about the dead either. You don't, you don't speak of the dead. And so um, even at funerals and things like that, my, my dad's mother then died. Um, so his, his dad who became the father and raised his children. Um, my grandma Springs, she actually died when my dad was like 15. Um, and so he was the youngest in the family. His two siblings were um, 10 and five years older than he was. And so he was deeply affected by the loss of his mother. And I think it was another loss that was really hard on my grandfather. So there's definitely these like waves of, of trauma that have been passed down into how we manage emotions or talk about or don't talk about things. And I think it's one of the reasons why my dad really clings to his faith because it elicits a lot of emotional response from him through like the group processes that worship often does. And um, I'm actually just coming to that now, but it's maybe one of the reasons why, despite the fact that these things don't fit, right? The way that the Mormon faith is actively discriminated against people of color until as late as like the late 70s. I just go, how do you square, you know, square that? But I think um, his sense of emotional belonging in that community is something that he's never experienced anywhere else. Yeah, that's really interesting to think about that. And it, yeah, like what it can provide balancing what it might have taken away or- mm -hmm or how it might have led to what he then needed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it serves him. You know, he's really invested in it, serves him. And and I will say that, you know, there was a time when I was very like anti all things organized religion. And now I've sort of come into my own spiritually where I sort of feel that if these frameworks work for you, then that's amazing. Where I draw the line is when you use these frameworks to oppress other people. Yeah. Then I'm like, nope that's where it ends right so like practice as you wish engage your faith like people's faith is really important in their construction and how they see the world and their meaning making and I think that's beautiful and there's thousands of gods right and thousands of different ways that people worship all over the world but the the in-group out-group aspects of faith um, can be huge tools of oppression that we really have to be vigilant about yeah 
So how do you, I'm like, there's so much about religion we could talk about, but <laughs> there's more things I want to talk to you about, Sunny. So um, talking in your work, um, teaching other people who may not be members of the minoritized group, um, how do you, how do you model getting it wrong? How do you teach them, or if not directly modeling it, how do you teach them how to get it wrong? Yeah. It's okay to get it wrong. I think I use myself as an example a lot um, because I did not come from a family that was sort of like steeped in social justice causes, right? So so learning these things for me was about like the process of unlearning. Um, so as you know, as an ally wanting to work with undocumented students, um, I know there are times that I've gotten wrong, that I've centered myself, that I've chosen my own discomfort over, or my own comfort over someone else's, you know, discomfort. And thinking back and reflecting on the moments that I've gotten it wrong or that I failed to speak up, I think those stayed with me long enough that when I finally decided to cross that threshold and say something, you know, your voice shakes and your hand shakes and you, you just feel like something terrible is going to happen. But in that moment, it's like, I don't want to abide in this space anymore, seeing the people that I love and care about being disregarded in this way. So the first time that I spoke up was like in a national meeting. We had just formed our group on diversity inclusion, the GDI, the AMC, and there was a lot of, of what those letters mean. We just say uh, what those letters mean. Yeah, the group on diversity and inclusion, and and you said and, the GDI and yeah, so the group on diversity and inclusion at the Association of American Medical Colleges, which okay. is actually about a little over ten years old. So if you can imagine that we didn't have like a association wide group representing diversity issues, we only had a small section for minority affairs within the student affairs kind of group, right? So in educational affairs, faculty affairs, residents and council of teaching hospitals, we had no peer group sort of looking after diversity. It was a huge institutional blind spot. So when we were forming this group, I think people were getting into that sort of illusion of scarcity. And, and one of um, a, a black man went up to the mic and said, um, we were talking about LGBT inclusion. And if we wanted to include, you know, sexual and gender minorities within this new group and someone went up to the mic and was like, you know, we haven't moved the needle on racial equity and, you know, just said some things that were super hurtful, um, used terms that were disrespectful, like, you know, your sexual preference and this and that. And, and it really just like, there was a panel of people managing the discussion and this person said their piece and it sort of landed on the room in this way. And I have a lot of BIPOC colleagues that I knew were also gay or lesbian or bi, right? And so I'm like looking around and I'm looking at their faces and I'm just seeing their faces just, they're thinking, if I don't have this group, I don't belong anywhere, right? Yeah. And how can I like sit in the room with these people and trying to do equity work when they don't think that I should be in this room, right? Like based on the, the intersections of identity. The panel just like moved on, Jill. It was like, and I'm sitting there like, wait a second, yeah. something really important just happened within our group where we came to this intersection of are we really going to be that eye for inclusion or not? And nobody's going to say anything. I think it was assumed that people in the room thought, well, what that person said is just sort of fringy and we're just going to move on. So I went to the mic and I was waiting in line and I definitely had a very shaky voice and said, you know, I just want to take the room back to what was said a couple of comments ago. Like, I'm not okay with this, right? And I specifically talked about that. And I knew in that moment that, like, my friends who who that was being levied at, like, they couldn't go up to the mic and say something. Yeah. They were so disempowered and hurt in that moment. And I was like, if it's not me, then who's going to say something, you know? And so I did. And I got really emotional. But I just said, like, I'm not okay with this. Like, this is not the kind of medical education that I want to build. We are better than this. We are more courageous than this. And so many people after the meeting, like came up to me and said, I'm really glad you said something. I'm really glad you said something. And I'm thinking we all need to be more saying things more, you know, and, and as uncomfortable as it was and as scary as it was, I was like, 
I'm going to keep doing this because otherwise, like we just keep pretending like there's a secret understanding that we disagree. We're not going to really move the needle on any of this um, inclusion. Yeah. It's interesting, the discomfort. I mean, that's like the work that I basically do in this space is like helping people process that discomfort, but like it's so entrenched in dominant culture, white supremacy culture, however we, we define it, that, that right to comfort. And then if you take a moment to be like, what the F is it? So what, like, <laughs> just effing say something, but like what, you know, yeah. like, like the fact that it's so uncomfortable, like it's a thing that's real. Yeah. But then like taking a step back and being like, why is it so hard for me to say, you know, it's, it's always interesting to like, look at the bigger picture of it. Right. Um, so I, you know, addressing that cultural aspect of it is important. Right. And the truth is we have to really recognize like, what do we have to lose here? Mm-hmm. Right. And in that moment for me, it was like, I have a lot to lose here because I am endorsing a space that's dehumanizing my friends. I, I can't abide that. Right. Like, wow, this is supposed to be our professional space where we do the work of diversity, equity, inclusion together, and we can't let comments like that stand. On the other hand, the condemnation and shaming also doesn't work, right? And so I made an invitation to the group that that we dig into this, we keep dialoguing. I offered a correction for the terminology for those of you that may not be aware. We don't use the term sexual preference. Here's why, you know, and I, I tried to offer education in that moment too, because I think an open hand towards someone is much better than a closed fist, right? There's times where we need to maybe use a closed fist, but I try to invite people to the table because I don't know, I, I've just sat around and heard so many hurtful comments by white people. And I, and I think I've had experiences where I've passed as white without even like trying to pass. Like people just sort of assume that you quote, act white, you speak white. And so therefore like all these comments and all these things around racism or classes, like we'll just like let them fly, right? So I've had this kind of behind the scenes, almost like spy kind of existence as a biracial person being the both and person um, of understanding how this works, right? So when I was reading Robin DiAngelo's work about you know, the white solidarity and the white, I was like, oh, I, I've heard and witnessed and experienced and participated in all of this, whether I want to or meant to or not, you know, and thinking about my own existence as a brown child of a white woman, I know I had a very different childhood than if I had been a brown child of a brown woman. Yeah. And that I'm thinking back about my experiences. Wow. How many opportunities did I get? because I was the brown child of a white woman. People would walk up to my mom at the grocery store and say, oh my God, your children are beautiful. Where did you get them? And she'd be like, my uterus, you know, like, but I mean, people just always assumed that we didn't belong to her. And so it was just a strange existence as a child to be like, why do people think that I don't belong to my mom? You know, so. How old were you when you were, can you remember when you were first aware of that? I think it was five or six. Yeah. And I remember, um, you know, kindergarten drop off and some of the spaces where people, I remember realizing that people kind of looked at us differently. Um, and we didn't talk about race or racism in our family, like at all. In fact, my dad is still to this day a pretty big bootstrapper, right? Like you just work hard. And because that's how my family dealt with racial trauma, right? The Japanese, the Japanese American Citizens League motto is, we work harder. Wow. Like, I'm not kidding. Like, that's what it, I mean, it's just, it, so part of it is we can overcome these systems or structures of oppression through hard work. And so it's like, you can work your way out of the pain. And I definitely see that among myself and my siblings um, moving forward. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, I'm going to have a, a moment of vulnerability here. I did not know that we do not say sexual preference. And I feel like I'm a person that spends a good amount of time and energy. What do you say instead? And can you explain why not? Because I feel like I've heard that recently in like settings, like 
clinical settings or, or something like that. So please educate me. And if I'm wondering, I'm sure there are other people listening who are wondering also. I love that question, Jill. <laughs> and I, I love that, you know, I'm not going to say that, that there's like a book of canon of what the preferred terms are for all of this, because whenever we want the rule book, that's always about power, right? And not really about relationships. So my understanding of why many folks who identify as gay, lesbian, bi, trans, non-binary, all those things don't prefer preference is that it, it makes it sound like you chose to be that, mm. right? Like you woke up today and you chose to be a woman, right? Well, no, I just am. So I think, especially um, in places like Salt Lake City, where we're being gay or bi or alt trans is seen as a sin, like the choice of it of saying, like, well, that's just what you prefer. You could just prefer something else and then all of this would go away, right? You could just choose to be something else. So it's, I think a little bit of the, are, are we innately born with a gender identity and a sexual orientation or a sexual identity or are these choices, right? Because heteronormativity is just assumed that you didn't make a choice, right? Yes. So if you choose something other than that, then there's something wrong with you. And then also you are now responsible for your own oppression because you just chose that. If you wanted it to go away, just choose something else and then yeah. it's fine, right? Which that never made sense to me because I saw how much my friends who were gay um, were challenged or struggled and just thought, why would someone pick that? If the answer was just pick something else, like with how society was so terrible, right? And homophobic and transphobic and all those things, like clearly people would, based on being logical humans, choose to do something else if that made sense to them. But I also, I think, came to that empathy through understanding that it would have been so much easier for me to stay being Mormon. Because like all of my social structures were built around that, my family of origin, like all of the traditions and things that you do, like the actual impetus that it took to sort of step out of that because it just didn't work with who I was as a person is the, like the tiniest little grain of salt of empathy that I can think of for how someone would want to live genuinely in their authentic self because it would have been easier for me to do something different. And I considered it for a long time. And now that I'm in my forties and I have a lot of friends who are coming to that, you know, you know, they're saying, oh my God, I really wish I would have figured out my spiritual path sooner. I have cousins and people in my family that, you know, all raised to be like very devout that are discovering other paths to happiness that were foreclosed to them, right? Because of this like rigidity of their beliefs that they couldn't step out of. So I do, you know, I do get the, the at least a little bit of the, the fight towards authenticity and what you're willing to give up because you want to just walk in your own truth. And that there's not a price for that, right? So what would you say instead without being a rule booky, but like, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I don't know, like on surveys, we talk about this all the time in our, in our, mm -hmm. um, in our uh, equity program that we're facilitating, like, how do we get the data on this? So do, do you say, you still, you don't say sexual. So what, how might one ask the question if they're asking, for example, on like a health intake form? Mm -hmm. I used to say when I was a doctor, like, do you have sex with men, women, or both? Mm -hmm. For that period, it was like, let's just put all the options out there and not have anyone say, and not, it's not about labels. It's just like, right. I would assume that that's problematic at this point. And I don't, I'm not in a position in my life. I don't practice medicine where I need to ask anybody, any of those things. Like mm -hmm. I care less. I'm happy for anyone to be anything. But if you are needing to ask in a situation, what might, yeah. Say? So we ask about um, gender identity. Um, mm -hmm. So we ask sex assigned at birth, which is sort of, you know, part of like the systems of sort of how are you documented in terms yeah. of your sex assigned at birth. And we ask about your gender identity, which may or may not be similar to sex assigned at birth. People might be non-binary or genderqueer. And then we also can ask about their sexual identity, which could give people an opportunity to say they're gay or lesbian or bi you know, their pan, like lots of different okay. ways. So sexual identity to... rather than sexual preference. Sounds yeah. And then uh, for the medical people, you also have to ask about behavior. Yeah. Because just because you identify. So one of my friends used to say, I don't like the word bisexual. I prefer bi relationshipal mm -hmm. because it's really about, again, if you've seen, have you seen the gender bread person? 
it's like a, it's like a, it's really great. So we should have, we should put it in the show notes. So it's a gender bred person. It explains your sex assigned at birth, your gender identity, your gender expression, your sexual orientation, and who you're attracted to. So there's like a, an emotional spectrum of attractiveness. There's like a, a sexual attractiveness, right? So like there's different versions of how we, we connect with other people. So um, when I was describing this to my, my daughter, I said, I am like very emotionally deeply connected to women. I have deeply intimate relationships with my friends who identify as women, but I'm not sexually attracted to women, right? And so it's like, it's, it's all of these different pieces of, of what makes up how we, how we do connection. And so I said, if I weren't a person who sort of identified or felt like that was important or that was of value to me, I may choose partnerships and life partners, folks who are women who are life partners, right? Because that might really meet the needs that I have. So we, we have gender, sex assigned at birth, gender identity, sexual identity, and then sexual practices, um, because there might be people despite their, their sexual identities, people enact those very differently, right? And so that, that's how we get, you know, men who have sex with men and these different terms where they don't identify, they say, oh, well, no, I'm not gay, but they are men who have sex with men. So we can't just say that it's about identity. You know, we also have to ask about, about the practices and, um, and there are lots of, of, I think, health practices missed by not asking those questions because we sort of, well, are you single? Or are you married? Or you're divorced, right? And then we just assume, oh, if someone's married, then they're, then we just assume they're monogamous, right? And we don't ask about their sexual practices and, right. and um, all those things. So it, it's, I think we're not having very nuanced conversations around this and probably missing a lot in terms of health and psychological well-being and how we ask these questions. That's really helpful. Thank you. I, you know, in my, in my own like gynecologist office, it's all women there. So they don't have to ask about what gender you're assigned at birth because they know, well, maybe they don't know. I don't know. I can't, I don't know the nuances of it. Cause I'm like out of medicine and I don't know like who goes to what doctors, but like, they say like, are you gay, heterosexual, homosexual? And like, mm-hmm. that's it. And I'm like, I'm he- like, I'm, I'm a woman who is partnered with a man. And, but I'm like, like, I say something to the front desk and I say something to my gynecologist, but I don't know, like, how are they still doing that? Like, how is that yeah. still something that they're asking at a place where we're talking about this, right. the, 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 like, the part where it happens, you know, where, the, where all right. the sex happens and the reproduction happens. How are we not asking those questions? So um, that was a really good description. Thank you. Yeah. And people and the students have taught me there's this term called ACE, which is asexual, which means you're really interested in emotional intimacy and even some forms of physical intimacy, but not sex. So I'm like, oh, so you're like snuggly kind of, you know, your intimacy like sort of stops there and you get what you need from that. Like you're really not interested in sex. And there's a lot of stigma for people like what's wrong with you, right? You don't have this biological drive, like something's wrong with you if you're not interested in sex. And so people say, no, no, I'm, I'm ace. And so, oh, I'm imagining someone thinking about who do they would, would they like to choose as a life partner if that was really their identity? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's uh, a new term for me too. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so how what what is the in medical education? Um, what do you think are like some of the the main areas? Like, what are some of the main areas that you're trying to get? If if you're trying to make a program more equi- excuse me more equitable, what are some ways that 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 you can help recruit white people who are going to get you there and that, you know, like, and, and who are um, ways that programs can go about that, because there's a lot of programs depending on the specialty um, that's like, you look around and it's all white men in the program. Mm -hmm. And there's like, maybe like I, I spoke with someone recently, she's an ophthalmologist and she is a white woman married to a black man and everyone else in her department is a white man. And there's massive issues with DEI there. And she's like, mm-hmm. how the F do I even make inroads? So that's kind yeah. of a somewhat extreme example, but, but how, like, where do you start? Cause you do this work all the time. Where do you start? So I think one of the things that has facilitated growth and change in me is learning. 
interpersonal learning and relationships. So we have to create structures within our institution that facilitate both of those things. Um, so at my school, we have a program called Learning for Equity, Anti-Racism, Anti-Oppression, LEAP. And it requires everyone who's part of our campus community, faculty, staff, and students to do 12 hours a year of learning in this. Um, and there's six different domains. It could be experiential learning, could be research, could be learning on your own. But it's basically trying to integrate learning of these skills and knowledge, like there's lots of different learning in these domains into everything that you do. So if you're going to your society's meeting or society of radiologists and there's a DEI theme session, you can go to that and you can turn that in for leap credit, right? So the end of the year when faculty do their reviews, they're accounting for whether they've participated, students do it as part of their compliance, similar to BLS or mask fit, you know, testing. And this is about psychological safety, right? Like we make everybody do their, their um, BLS or ACLS um, training as physicians, even if they work in psychiatry, because it's just part of like, you have to be able to keep everyone safe if you're going to be a provider of any kind in the, in the hospital. But we don't attend to that when it comes to like, how it's probably more likely that racism and sexism is going to show up and someone's going to have a cardiac event right in front of you, right? So what is our responsibility to ourselves and to our community for continuing to learn about this? The universality of it means that we're all going to be able to choose um, the kinds of things that we engage with. And, and when we were designing this learning platform, we really had to recognize that we wanna meet the needs of people who wanna talk about um, white fragility and white feminism and critical race theory, because we have students that are very advanced in their studies and faculty as well. But we also wanna create space for people to learn who are still wondering and didn't know that California used to be part of Mexico and had sort of the typical US history education, right? And didn't have an opportunity to really dig in and learn about groups that were different than them or haven't embraced those opportunities in the past. So it has to be this like full spectrum of learning that kind of meets people where they are and encourages them and invites them to step closer towards that growth transformation that happens in, the, in that discomfort space. So we do have some learning opportunities that are food, fun, and festival that I consider as new. And that's okay because you're going to see things and hear things and be exposed to things that sort of start to develop that muscle of, oh, I'm a white person and I came to this celebration for Diwali and I ate food and I heard a little bit about it. And I heard some of my colleagues and classmates talking about how they celebrate and new neurons in my brain are going off that there are different ways that people do things that bring them joy, right? And that, that like to me, that's an okay starting point. Now we can't stay there. I really hope that as people begin to engage that, they continue to move along that spectrum where the next time they might go to a session on child trafficking and learn a little bit more about oppression for different types of vulnerable groups and be able to have opportunities to compare and contrast that to their own lived experiences and realities. So, uh, you know, I, I do very much see it as a spectrum and that comes from my own experience of where I came from, right? Like I show a picture of my ally training of me dressed as Pocahontas and it's like so cringy. Even my kids are like, mom, that's so bad. Um, my kids know about cultural appropriation. I didn't. I couldn't have done better as a 16 year old because I wasn't taught those things, right? And so I try to leave space behind me along my own spectrum of learning to invite people to know better and do better and to have that as a reasonable expectation because the, the hyper-wokeism is not, is not helping, right? For people to get sort of slapped for not knowing the terms or not being perfect or you know, not getting this right um, it isn't helpful. I think we have to hold people accountable, but we don't want to shame them and, and turn them away. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like we've gone back and forth a lot in our group. It's sort of like, we need to like hold space for people on their journey the same way I was, I'm still on my journey, obviously, but like where I might've been a few years ago versus where I am now. But then also the sentiment of like, like mother F, like, just get over it and learn and stop, you know, like, like mm -hmm. this frustration that it has to be a thing that way. You know, I think like there's so much emotional um, pain that behind the fact that we don't want to shame people for being where they're at. The, the fact that people are even where they're at 
because mm-hmm. of how this country is, is, is so traumatizing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's such a difficult balance to hold people accountable and offer that support. And I just keep coming back to this is relationship-based work. And so when I, when someone gives me feedback, I take that as an act of love and investment in me as a person. And so when I give feedback, I need to see it that way as well. And I try to say it in a way that helps that person hear, you know, hey, when you said this thing in the meeting, like it didn't, it didn't come across as supportive. And I actually know you to be really supportive. And so that's, I just wanted to kind of bring this to your attention, right? And, and I think it's seen as a way of having someone's back, but that happens within the context of relationship and also the safety of vulnerability, right? If all communication is weaponized within our organizations, if everything is, is documented and we're not allowed to say, hey, I made a mistake, or I wish I would have done that differently without fear of losing our jobs. And, you know, one of the things I'm digging into right now is the privilege that I've that I've had of why do I have this orientation that I just trust people from the get-go? Like, where did that come from, right? And, and I had a lot of predictability and stability growing up. I didn't have a lot, but I had a certain amount of predictability that I think has led me to be very trusting and that has been an advantage. And so I never thought about the, the privilege of just being able to trust the things that people say or the rules that are given. Um, how I've interacted with systems, you know, with a mom as the sort of white navigator of those systems who taught me those things, who wasn't disenfranchised by the systems that she, you know, shepherded her kids through. And so I'm actually reading um, The Thin Book of Trust, an essential primer for building trust at work. The Thin Book of Trust? It's called The Thin Book of Trust um, by Charles Feltman. And it's about like building trust at work. But I'm overlaying like a racial lens to the things that the book says. And it's it's really helping me to sort of understand ways that being able to trust is a big is a big privilege, right? So one of the things that he says is the people you lead watch you very closely and are acutely aware of how congruent your actions are with your words. And I said, so how does this impact trust of leadership for for people of color who hear their organizations all the time talk about how important diversity is but never act accordingly. Yeah. So how do so so yeah, wait a minute, right? Like how you even develop trust in the people that you work for is, is really, really different. And then even the very baseline definition of trust that, that he gives is choosing to risk making something you valuable, vulnerable to another person's actions. But what if there's no choice, right? Like what if your place in the system does not actually allow you to, to choose to make that vulnerable? You are automatically assigned a position of vulnerability. Yeah. Well, shit, that's a whole different thing. Right. And so I'm like, even the way that we construct conversations around trust um, reinforces and centers whiteness and maleness and and class privilege in ways that we put the onus of developing that trust onto the most vulnerable people in the system. So that's what I'm grappling with right now is what advantages do I enjoy in even being able to do this work, being feeling safe to do this work, when a lot of my colleagues who are Black women or Latinx or Filipinx women don't enjoy that same safety. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. It's like, it's, it's safety. I mean, I think it goes hand in hand there, trust and safety there and like, who, who, who gets to tell people when they get to feel safe, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I'm, I've been with my husband for seven, eight years and I'll talk about how I'm speaking out. And there's these moments where he'll be like, are you going to get fired? You know? And I just, it actually crossed my mind that I've never been afraid of being fired. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. I had to sit with that for a second because you know what my, just for context, my husband was a pipe fitter, mechanical fabrication, pipe fitter, union train in Chicago for 20 years. And so the way that things work in unions and on jobs is like, you can just get fired at any time. They're like, you're fired. Here's your check. Like they, they can fire you without cause. I mean, it's completely different. And the nature of your work is like seasonal and all that. So like, he's not had occupationally the same level of stability that I have, but also as a, as a Mexican American man, like his experiences within those systems of precarity around labor have been really different than mine. And so I started thinking about, 
I have behaved in ways that uh, where I'm not afraid of being fired in like every single, and, and maybe I should have, like maybe I should have been more afraid of being fired, but what privileges am I afforded even in my worldview to have that sort of sense of safety and uh, to be able to speak from that authentic, for that place of safety authentically. Like I've been digging into that a lot more in terms of my own, um, my own allyship and understanding how many of the people I work with have a lot less space, right? Like a lot less space to work in than I do um, because of that sense of safety and trust within organizations and just within society in general. Yeah. Um, I love that. I'm going to put the book, uh, the thin book of trust in the show notes. Um, all right. Well, we are past time. So um, thank you so much. Um, you are, you work for a university. Do you have like social media where you want people to follow you or are there opportunities for people to work with you individually or is your, that, or that course training that you have, is that something people can do on their own or is that part of the institution? Um, so I have a small consulting practice, um, Sunshine Medical Education, and um, I, I do that. So I work with organizations on, you know, policies, integrated equity practice pieces. I, I help with trainings and, and things like that. I have a, a book that I wrote for pre-med students from my years as an admissions dean. It's called Pre-Med Prep, um, Advice from a Medical School Admissions Dean, and it's really welcoming students from non-traditional backgrounds, undocumented backgrounds, you know, underrepresented students, first-gen students, centering their stories as part of the preparation process to medicine, because everything else does not center those students at all. And really it's me giving the stories and journeys of students back to them. It's just, I'm just giving them their wisdom because I've been able to really share the journeys of students and learn, learn the intricacies of these, um, of navigating the process from, you know, being trusted to work with them. And then I'm on um, Twitter at, at Dr. Nakai and also on Instagram, Dr. Nakai. Awesome. We will put the links for all of that. Um, what's the website of your, of your um, Sunshine Medical Education? I don't have one yet. My okay. husband was like, you need a website. I'm like, I haven't had time. I've just been, you know, working with folks. Um, a lot of, a lot of, I actually started it because I kept getting asked to help. And I was yeah. like, I need to do something, you know, to make it a little bit more formal. So I started it last year. Okay. Um, to get up to speed and get a website and all that stuff. So maybe when my, if my, my son likes to code, so maybe I'll just ask my son to make me a website on Weebly or something. He, he was telling me how he could do a website for me. So I probably should take him up on that. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sunny. Um, so much to learn from you and your experiences and um, all the good you're doing in the work. So think uh, in the world. So thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.